All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. You got Michael's one and two, Benson Yano. We got Happy Mike now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> this is the radio voice. This Everything. is the face, the smile. Let's go. <laughs> How are we doing, guys? Are you guys recovered from permissionless? No, no more conferences for a little bit. I think I'm off the conference tour. I'm here in New York. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to go to Mainnet. Maybe just the dinners and stuff. But I thought permissionless was great. It's a cool city. There's honestly the South is just as someone who grew up in the North, the South gets something that the North doesn't get. They're much more laid back. They're like just just more chilled and ready for I don't good know. Time. I don't know if Austin is the South. But I mean it, but, it but kind I like of is though. I was in Nashville once and I was I was like I said basically something like what I just said, like, oh the South is there's something really cool about the South. It's like I, I went to a school in the South in Atlanta and this guy's like Atlanta is the New York of the South. I was like, oh shit. All right. Well, yeah, really, never mind then. Really get there. Let's start talking about crypto stuff. I would be curious. I kind of want to start by talking about Eclipse. Um, so, Eclipse, Neil Samani, the founder, spoke at Permissionless. Um, and he, he's got a company called Eclipse. They were an SVM based roll up as a service product that announced this week that they were launching an. A roll up on Ethereum. So, what's particularly interesting about Neil's design choice for Eclipse is that it uses the Solana virtual machine. And there's a bunch of advantages that the SVM has over the EVM, out excluding network effect, where the EVM is definitely winning. The, the major reason why you'd want to use the SVM is parallel runtime. So, local fee markets, parallel execution is built right into that. The EVM has a single thread processor, which just limits its scale, whereas the SVM can do parallel execution. They're also using Celestia for data availability. So they're not using ETH validator set for DA, and they're using risk zero for proofs. So in, in a sense, you could bill it as sort of a best of all worlds situation where you have very fast execution, really cheap DA, and it still settles down to ETH. And I think they're going to use ETH as the gas token as well. So... It's kind of a very interesting blend of a whole bunch of different ecosystems. I'd be curious what you guys thought about this. It's kind of the opposite of Neon, right? Which was bringing uh, the EVM to Solana. That that mm. like that was very hyped up because it was like, you know, EVM has network effects. Solidity has lots of developers on it. People. Well, I think they're using they're using Neon here. They're using Neon here. Yeah, they're using Neon for EVM uh, compatibility. So if you want to easily deploy EVM smart contracts on Eclipse, you can do it through through Neon. It's cool. So like they're, it's not just DA, so it's DA and Celestia, like Mike mentioned, SVM for execution, settlement on Ethereum, ETH is the gas token, and then proving is uh, using Risk Zero for zk proofs, and then EVM compatibility via Neon EVM. It's like the first time I've ever seen like the full modular, not just on like DA and execution and stuff, but like bringing all these different providers together. I think it's it's probably not as relevant for DeFi. I think it's most relevant for games where like local fee markets actually matter. Because you like, you know, one game clogs Polygon proof of stake. Like there, there needs to be some other scaling solution than just launching all these games on 
a single threaded chain. Um, so I, I think this is like, it's interesting from a technical perspective. I think the ramifications will play out when there's like all these games clogging all these different L2s. Like there will 100% be that. And I, I honestly do think like the parallelized, you know, version of, 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 you know, scaling blockchains makes sense for high density, you know, high throughput markets like gaming. So I think it's pretty interesting. Like, what do you think about this? You you called this early. No, I just I just think um, Michael and I actually talked about this when it was just the two of us. But I think the way you could like the problem that most blockchains are running into is one of scale. And there's a couple of different so like ETH main chain runs into this problem where Ethereum, the network is optimized for solo validators that have very low hardware requirements. So there's just limited throughput that you can do on main chain. And one of the big problems with ETH and specifically the way that they allocate resources um, is that all the resources are sort of coupled. So one, there's just not very high throughput on ETH main chain. But then two, the way gas fees are calculated is it's there are two inputs. It's the base fee and then there's the computational resources that each transaction requires. So what you can get is if there's an, like a really hot NFT mint, it can multiply the base fee and then that base fee gets applied to transactions on Uniswap. So the resources are coupled in a way that doesn't really make sense. So what Solana, it's like there's a couple ways that you could solve that, which is one, to just put every single blockchain application on its own chain, um, which is sort of the ETH rollup, like that's the OP stack version of how to solve this problem. The other way that you could solve it is to actually keep everything on one settlement layer and chain, but do what Solana did by creating local fee markets and parallel processing. And I don't know, I I think a big question for me is how much 4844 and dank sharding is actually going to reduce the costs of these rollups. And the way I've been thinking about it recently is that it's not going to reduce costs that much, especially on the canonical rollups that still use DA or Ethereum for data availability. So I think you need one of these rollups to try something like the solution that um that uh that eclipse is pioneering here and actually i'm starting to get a little bearish on just how many roll-ups do you really how many app specific roll-ups do you really need you know i i kind of starting to get a little bearish on that idea um so i think what neil has done is very clever in terms of the design and then it's going to be down to his bd chops to actually go and recruit developers and who he's probably competing with for devs is solana because these are Rust devs, I think, that he's hoping to bring over and build applications. So I think it's really, I, I really like the architecture. Um, but yeah, that's what I think about it. I wonder what, like on an average day, this is, you know, paying to ETH to settle if it's not paying for DA. Like, do, do you have a sense of that? Dude, it's nothing. It's like a hundred bucks a day or something like that on the order of a hundred bucks a day. Yeah. Yeah. It's when, when, as soon as you accept a modular roadmap, what you don't know, what nobody knows and everyone's guessing at right now is where the network effects are, like what, what layer the network effects accrue to. And, you know, maybe because we started this whole industry in Bitcoin, like the settlement layer, like how many times have you heard that settlement, 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 it's all about that. I, I don't know, but it could not be settlement, right? Like you could imagine... Like whether you know it or not, your your base view has probably been very oriented around, well, you know, you provide a lot of security at the base layer, make really good settlement assurances, and then everyone's going to have to come to you. And there's going to be this bottleneck of supply and demand where you could totally flip your, or flip your framing and say, actually, all of the stickiness is going to accrue at the execution layer. 
And there's just going to be these interchangeable parts that you can swap in and out at the base layer. And it's probably not going to be as simple as one one of those those framings. But I think projects like Neil's is going to make people question some of their assumptions about where value actually ends up accruing. That's what I think. Not to say that this will play out in the same way, but it does kind of remind me of what like the mid 2010s uh, whole SaaS business model was, which was basically just like wrappers on top of AWS or GCP. And it was all, you know, this narrative of, oh, well, it's going to be Dropbox and Dropbox owns the customer relationship and Dropbox, you know, is what people think about. But in reality, it's just this cloud storage built on top of S3, EC2. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, as well, Mike, but the value ultimately still accrued to AWS. It's just because, you know, everybody thought, oh, well, we'll just go off and build our own. We'll have our own. It's going to be better that way, cheaper that way. But in reality, it's cheaper to have AWS because they have economies of scale. So I, I kind of wonder if settlement will become the same thing. Every, every, the narrative of we don't need to do anybody else's settlement is becoming more pronounced. But I think ultimately people are going to realize it's better just to have the same security. And even if it is the cheapest way, like it's better to rely on somebody else for handling that. Yeah. I, I still don't think, though, even if people, everyone uses ETH for settlement, that that's necessarily bullish not that this is necessarily what we're talking about, but ETH token price. I don't know if that means that value has to accrue to ETH the token. So Celestia is launching soon. So uh, Eclipse is using Celestia. Eclipse hasn't launched their mainnet yet. They're going to lose Celest- or use Celestia. So I'd guess that Celestia is going to launch before Eclipse launches their mainnet. So is that not that... This is the not financial advice section, but what does this mean for ETH price and just the demand for ETH if all of these rollups start using Celestia for data availability? Like, how do you guys think about that? So I think there's, you know, not financial advice, no price predictions, you know, all of those caveats. I think there's there's two elements to a token's price in my mind. One is the fees, the underlying, and the other is the monetary premium. And the only two assets that have monetary premium are, are basically ETH and Bitcoin, in, in my mind, at least. And you know, by entering that category, you enter into a more expansive valuation, you know, heuristic. Like, what is gold worth? People just say it's worth what it's worth because it's been worth that for thousands of years. And so, like, if you think an ETH and Bitcoin have that lendiness, the market is pretty sufficiently large as long as it's used as money. And where does it get its money use case from? Like, you know... Uh, Eclipse is using ETH as the gas token. Like we've talked about this a little bit. It's like, you know, is that ETH burnt when it crosses the bridge? People just came out of the woodwork when I tweeted that. I I don't think it's entirely that way, but I do think there is some element of putting it on a chain as a use case that looks and feels like money. And then you have the DeFi and the NFTs and the games that live on ETH L1. And that's kind of where the fees come from. I, I do think the other part of this is if we already have like, I don't even know how many rolls we have 200 at this point, like more than a hundred for sure, at least in production. Like if we are underestimating the amount of rollups by like two orders of magnitude, maybe that is enough, you know, just to add more incremental fees and build that story. But at some level, like the, the valuation heuristics of the ETH token price are, are more determined by how much of it is used, you know, as money versus the fees. That's at least what I think. Like what, like when you, like all the friend tech keys are priced in ETH. Like when you see ETH bridging to new L2s, like, you know, that that money's there to speculate. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's a very unique asset. 
it's kind of, it's impossible to value on, on just fundamentals alone. And, and it's also highly possible, you know, once again, not financial advice, that we see a J curve in terms of how much of the fundamentals or where, which direction the fundamentals go. And I have been doing a little bit of research on what this new 4844 uh, will do to the economics. And there's going to be three blob spaces per block, which means that there's going to be three uh, roll-ups that can put their blobs in a, in a block. And if we already have a hundred rollups, think about what that's going to do. Like how often is your rollup going to go settle back to ETH L1? Is it going to be once every 10 minutes? Is it going to be once every 10 blocks? Like who, who knows, right? There's only three spots. And I, I would imagine that we're still going to see the continuation of, you know, roll apps. You know, it's not, we're not going to stop at a hundred. We're, we're, who knows where we end up maxing out in terms of the number of rollups, but I think there's not going to be that much available space for roll apps to be able to deploy on the ETH L1. And so, I don't know. I mean, it may go down in the, in the meantime in terms of the amount of uh, transaction volume or transaction fees, but I, I would say, you know, directionally it's going up. If you think about the high level, Mike, like I totally am sympathetic to your argument, but like if I look at what happened on chain today, like Binance spiked it to like 100 Gwei because they were using some inefficient script to move, you know, assets off of their exchange. Like, you know, like the scaling problem is fixed and, and fees are like, you know, low until fees are like incredibly high. Like in my view, the validator business is big lumpy days. That's really what you want. Right. And so like, sure, if you think about like what the yields on ETH could be, let's say that, you know, ETH doubles in terms of staked and, and what you're earning is a yield, you're probably earning, you know, low threes most of the time in terms of yield. But whenever there's like, even a smidgen of activity, like you're back in the six, 7% range. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint when exactly that happens, but it's just when basically the market turns back on. So it's, it's levered to the cycle effectively. Yields are always going to be lower in bear markets. The other thing that I think is, is really kind of like central to this question is what, what role does restaked ETH play? Cause that's like another money like use case where it's like, Sure, the fees on ETH, you know, most of the time are like, you know, say you net out on average, like, you know, in the fours, like you can augment that with basically ETH centric yield farms where you're taking your ETH and going off and validating other, you know, DAs, other bridges, other oracles. Like that is a, a very bizarre use case that you can't quantify in a financial model, but it adds the monetary premium. I agree with that. I, th I think it's, um, I have a couple of thoughts on that. So one, just a note about that three blobs per slot that that actually isn't limited to rollups. So the market for blob space is a permissionless market. So you could have an NFT project mint using blob space. So mm. it's even yep. slightly slightly more constrained than than um three rollups per like, like, per slot. Like, do you remember do you remember in the bear, in the bull market when it was like 3 grand? To, to yeah. Like I think I think that's going to come back, but I think I think it's going to be like you look at the biggest fee days and you can see them on a chart for ETH. They're like a hundred times, you know, the next closest days. That that's kind of like, so you you like you think some of those days come back? Like who? When, when was one of those days? What's an example? Like board like the board eight the mint, board eight mint for example. Uh, I mean, yeah. like people forget, but all of those NFT mints were like sold out, gas yeah. war, Goomba affair. Like all of the ICOs, same thing. You know, everyone racing to hit that one endpoint, and like that is the. That's like the essence of why Ethereum block space is actually differentiated. It's because that stuff happens on it and it's viewed as this like high touch, high class, high
high gloss block space. So mm. that only manifests in terms of, you know, super high fee markets every once in a while, but I'm not as bearish on, on the fee outlook as, as most people. I think, I think you're still going to be in the, in the fours when it comes down to like, you clock out a year, what did you actually make? That would be my guess. I mean, just a, I think it was November or maybe it was October last year. There were like four or five days straight of really high fees. And that jumped the yield to like eight, nine, 10%. And that was post-merge. That was the highest yield I think we've had in terms of a week. But that was, that was pushing, you know, double digits. And that, that was, you know, 2022. Let, let, let's talk about the converse of this argument, which is kind of the argument for L2. There's some concept, right, of like a Laffer curve. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is where there's like an op, there's like you're you're actually missing out on some amount of transactions here. It's like dead weight load or something like that. Where there's when fees spiked that degree, there is a lot a lot of people that are just priced out of making transactions at all. Right. So there's like if you use the example of like Solana maybe being way like too cheap relative to the use cases that we need today versus every trade costs a million dollars, right? Like obviously if every trade costs that much, no one makes a transaction. There's some sweet spot where actually it's it's all very optimized in terms of the maximizing the amount of people that are making transactions than actually fees that get get paid back. So it's kind of like what Multicoin talks about in like the reverse network effects, right? Of right. of the fee market on Ethereum. I think I think that's right. Like if you if you do the math, basically what you come up with is that if your transactions are sub one cent, you need a hundred million of them per day to make 20 to 30 million sequencer profit per year. And so like the strategy of teams being like, we're gonna drive block space cost to zero. It's like, you know, that is a strategy. You can definitely differentiate yourself, I guess now less than you used to be able to, but like that is actually a, a shit business model where how do you get a hundred million transactions on chain? You're building something that probably more looks like Arweave or like Falcoin or like, you know, you're trying to put high volume, high quantity data on chain. I don't know if that's necessarily where you want to be. Um, if you're trying to bootstrap, you know, a native asset as something other than just like pseudo equity. Because frankly, we haven't seen an application that has that much throughput on chain. Right. Ever. No, I mean, I think, I think there will be some, but if a hundred million transactions per day is the bar for 20 to 30 million in profit, that's, that's, uh, that's a tough business model. I also think it's better to start with more expensive block space and then work your way down. Why, why is that a better strategy? Because you are signaling the high quality, you know, the, the, the high gloss, um, like Bitcoin, ETH, like a lot of the early days of that were just like, it's so inefficient, but the demand was overwhelming compared to the supply. And then over time, you kind of just drive supply of block space higher. Um, and you're able to kind of smooth out that transition. And so like, th that's like the, you have to take like the 10 to 20 year view of these things. If you're going to ask the questions of like, where are fees going to accrue? Where is value going to accrue? It's going to be interesting. The other thing I'll say is that I do think that there's going to be this weird catch up effect of dank sharding kind of taking over some of the scalability load from these L2s right as they're in their own kind of process of figuring out how do you get to that 100 million transactions per day. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be different, you know, for, for even the L2s. It's not, I don't, I don't think the L2s have clearly run away with the market compared to the L1s. Um, they're just at a different point in their scaling roadmap. I don't disagree with 
like anything that you're saying either. I'm, I'm trying to game out what, what I've been recently thinking about is what is going to happen when the bull market ends up returning? Like, how are things going to play out? And I think there's like one scenario where I think so activity starts coming back, gas fees start going up. And then people are like, that's okay, we have roll ups. But I don't think 4844 is going to solve the fees on uh, for most rollups because you're still paying DA to Ethereum. So there's a lot of burn going on. The fees are high. Yields are going up for stakers. Profit is being returned. That's good for the network. Mm-hmm. But I think at some point, this is where Solana and some of the other like Alt L1s won last time, right? Everyone's like, this is crazy. We haven't solved the fee thing. And then people start looking for cheaper alternatives. And at, at this point in the cycle, no one really cares about security, right? Like everyone does kind of dumb stuff. And that's where I think somewhere like either Eclipse, which is uses the SVM and Celestia for DA starts winning or Solana starts winning. The other the other version of the future that could work as well is if we just change the definition of what constitutes a canonical rollup and the Dankrat argument is kind of like people don't care about and they're like, you know what? Uh, DA is actually not part of being a rollup. You don't have to use ETH DA and like we can just use Eigen DA or Avail or Celestia or whatever. And then I think the fees will go down drastically on rollups and then ETH and the the rollup landscape will do a lot better. But those are those that's what I'm kind of trying to think out right now is where like who ends up winning and who ends up getting a bunch of their new users from this next cycle. Um, the, the lived experience of developers on the ground is like you launched on a super chain, you launched on a fucking ghost island. Like nobody's there. Like you are like it's it really is not a technology yeah. first argument. Like I'm pretty sure you could build a centralized blockchain roll up validium whatever and and actually get your blockchain cost to zero. I don't know how much good that would do you if the main benefits of crypto are composability, community, open source, you know, permissionlessness. And so like it isn't always a strictly technical argument. I do agree with you on the narrative of fees are going to go up. People are going to be like, oh my God, fees are like five, six, seven, eight percent again, crazy NFT mints, crazy games, whatever. Like literally the stuff that was driving the fee spike in first quarter was like this one Xnet like Ponzi thing. Like it was like this single weird Chinese app that had no sensitivity to gas prices. Like it's as simple as that. And you, you have a couple of those, three of those, four of those sentiment turns like, fees are going to go back up. The question is like when that stops activity out, because there was a point where it was just like, I can't introduce anybody to ETH because it literally is so expensive to onboard them. Like it just doesn't make sense. I don't think we're going to get there again because that load will probably be handled by rollups. But I do think the games are going to break the rollups if they really take off. And that's kind of where the question is going to be like, how much of this should we put on chain? you know, what other modular architecture can drive our costs down, that type of stuff. I think one one of the variables that I was thinking about recently is at what price point does it become beneficial to have basically the application pay the gas fees on behalf of the consumer? And I think that will be a flipping point when it's so cheap that, okay, great, we'll just bake this into our cost of goods sold. We'll bake this into something that's abstracted away for the user, account abstraction, that's great. The wallet will handle it, the app will handle it, what have you. And so I think ultimately you're going to get to a point where it becomes so cheap that you actually don't have to pay anything anymore. And it's not because no one's paying, it's just because the user is now not having to pay. People love to talk about the burn. The burn does not 
in our opinion, drive ETH prices. There is no price impact from that, except on like the super long indeterminate time period where it's like, you know, Apple took like a quarter of their shares out of the market compared to the past 10 years. Like maybe that on the margin drives some of the, the action, but the thing that drives action is demand. Like even in, even in this current market, kind of what I see at least is there are not a lot of sellers, but there's not a lot of buyers. But when the buyers show up, like you saw that huge volatile round trip that BTC and ETH took, you know, over 27 into like the high 1600s, like that's kind of what happens. And so what can drive demand for that? You know, that's, that's the name brand recognition of Ethereum being the gas token on every chain. It's the ability for ETH to be composable into restaking, to be used in DeFi. Like unless another asset becomes that, I've, I, I, I don't see the same level of like bull case for it. The 1559 also, I mean, the reason it kind of got co-opted by this ultrasound money meme and like the burn and people like to talk about and they think it's a supply-based argument. But my understanding of why the burn got implemented is because Ethereum as a protocol doesn't want to have to make a choice about where those, there's like security reasons for for not wanting to, like the burn is actually more about a security and anti-collusion thing for validators than it is about like number, you know, number go up technology. Um, and it, it, it actually, if you look at how it's done in Cosmos, it's extremely different. A lot of the fees that the protocol or the uh, the Cosmos hub makes is kind of like redirected via the hub, um, which is that's like not very money like, you know. Um, so I, I hear you on that, and I think that is a big part of ETH's value prop is, you know, it's a ETH could become a denomination. It it, it already has, and 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 finding something. Uh, product market fit for something is money is the hardest thing to do of anything. It requires people to actually own it, think of it as money, think of it as a store of value, use it in credit, use it to pay for things. Like that is a te- that is a decade long process that involves going 100x up and 99% down multiple times and having people hold on with you. And so, like, it's a. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think you can make something money if you tried. It just kind of happens. I don't know. I, this is where I do think, like, I, I think crypto's net new. And, you know, people would really object to, is it a money or is it a commodity? Because that would inherently put it in some bucket that you have in your mind. And therefore, the valuation heuristic would be changed. But I just think crypto is a net new thing, actually. And to call it a money, it's like, if there are money-like properties, there are also, frankly commodity-like properties of this thing too? Like, like is oil money? In, in, in a sense, oil's the realest money that there is, right? It's the input for everything in society. Arthur Hayes wrote a whole blog post about how you should denominate your life in oil. But that doesn't mean you could go to the store and use money and, and pay for <laughs> something classic, in oil. Classic Arthur, yeah. but, but in a sense, oil is yeah. a much more real form of money than paper dollars that the government prints. So I don't know. I... I hear that I would object to maybe like explicitly being like it's a money and this is how we're going to think exactly one to one on ETH, but it is a store of value, money commodity like thing, and I agree that that's super valuable. Vance and I denominate our net worth in ETH, so <laughs> that's how we live. Oh yeah, and Mike and I do it in oil, so <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Looking at crude go up, baby. Uh, Vance, you said one other thing that I, I think is really interesting, which is the the role that Eigenlayer is going to have to play in that, which there's like a money-like role, but then there's also a yield role, which Eigenlayer is going to have to play. So 
I think Sriram has come under a little bit of fire from the ETH Foundation who restaking is kind of a scary idea. It's sort of rehypothecating ETH. Sriram would object to this, but like my personal opinion, it looks a lot like adding leverage to the system. You're adding multiple claims on the same asset. But I think a narrative shift is actually coming for Eigenlayer where people view it as something that's very pro solo stakers and that will enable solo stakers to keep their yield up. And I actually, there's a, a piece that Dankrad wrote recently, which is where he talks about Eigenlayer like this, which is seeing if restaking like the long-term solution, um, Ethereum is dealing with a problem right now that they actually have too many validators. Um, and it's difficult to attest to, uh, and confirm transactions in a timely way. So there's like a whole bunch of different solutions being proposed, but one of the things that people are starting to be nervous about is exactly what you said, Vance, which is after a certain percentage of the ETH supply is staked, then yields will go down to a, a point where it's just not very competitive. And restaking could be an answer there that could supplement the yield that people are losing on a higher mm. stake rate. And that could like be was, framed as a positive solo staker thing. Why, why is why are, why is Eigenlayer bad for solo stakers? Solo stakers can participate in Eigenlayer, right? By by, It's not bad for solo stakers. It's a threat to the whole network in a sense, uh, if you kind of think about a worst case scenario. And there are multiple operation operational models for uh for eigenlayer so you could like the most intensive model for eigenlayer as a solo staker is you could opt to run in you could opt into running additional hardware yourself so you could turn over your withdrawal keys to the eigenlayer network and then you could actually run in like a future state a, a decentralized sequencer on optimism if they ever go that route the other thing that you can do that's going to be Probably the dominant way that people actually use Eigenlayer is uh, you liquid stake and then you delegate your liquid stake to someone else who is running hardware on your behalf. So it, Eigenlayer isn't really pro or anti solo staker in, in a sense. It will enable solo stakers to earn more yield. But if it depends on the model that you use Eigenlayer, if you like liquid stake and then just delegate your liquid stake into the Eigenlayer network and someone runs hardware on your behalf, you um, you're just accepting a higher amount of principal agent risk. Like there's just because more layers you're, because you're at risk of, of, of slashing for the re, for the restaker. So you have to basically for trust that to yeah. for both. It's like both, yeah. think about your counterparty. So if you if you liquid stake with Lido, your counterparty is the staking pool. It's Lido. Um, and then once you get the liquid staking token, and then you delegate that into the Eigenlayer network, and they pair it up with someone who's running like a sequencer or an Oracle or something like that, then you're trusting the Eigenlayer network and whoever's actually running that hardware on your behalf. You're just adding layers of principal agent problem. It's just someone who's supposed to be acting on your behalf, but, but could screw you. Some, someone will get blown up by this at some point. Um, yeah. You know, trying to pick up that extra... 2% yield and they just, they get slashed or something catastrophic happens. So two things on that. Number one, there's a meaningful lower bound to, to ETH yields. Like we, we've modeled out what consensus layer, what execution layer rewards look like when there's, you know, 50, 60 million staked ETH. It's still high twos and like interest rates are high right now, but like those get cut. And it's also fundamental. It's fundamentally different. It's uh, an asset that has a chance of appreciation versus something that's supposed to be stable. Like you're, you're so you're self-selecting for different things. I'm also not that bearish on on yields. I, I think they'll be higher even in the event that there's something like sixty or seventy million staked ETH. Which honestly, I, I do think that is probably the medium-term base case, the next three years. 
in terms of like supplementing your staking yields with things like Eigenlayer, I think it's true. I think there's going to be so many different flavors of Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer is just the first. It's not the last, not, not by a long shot. And, and, you know, the yield is dependent on what is the market cap of the Oracle or the DA layer or the bridge that you're securing, how much ETH is staked against it. But if you've got 60 or 70 million ETH staked, Eigenlayer, DA, or whatever that inflation token that you're earning is, that needs to be a huge market cap. And that's a function of like, can Sriram attract the devs to build the things and not just the primitives, like he needs to build the use cases too. And so like, it's, it's a little bit more than just like build it and they will come. Like they each have to bootstrap a very real ecosystem. The other cool stuff that's going to happen in my mind is things like leverage staking, more of a marketplace for staking, um, people doing it for lower fees. Like I do think there's going to be fee compression on the validator side. So I think, you know, incremental yields are going to come from a lot of different places, but it's going to be more of like this multiplayer, multi-path game where it's like, you know, you're staking your ETH on this Oracle today or restaking it, you know, now you're doing it in, you know, a bridge the next and you're using Steeth, you know, or, or I guess another liquid staking token to do it, but it's long-term, it becomes more and more important if that amount of ETH staked for something like Lido to have dual governance, because you need to have some sort of coordination mechanism with the unstaked ETH and honestly, the EF as well. They've got the staking router too. So they're decentralizing their validator set. Yeah. Like Lido. the goal for Lido is not to like, you know, just operate 28 node operators forever. Like they're adding new node operators every week and DVT and the staking router is the path towards thousands. I do think I just like another brief, you know, point on this is in a lower price environment, it becomes harder for smaller validators to compete. They have less to pay their validators. They have less to pay themselves in like, you think of the thing that the EF just put in, which is that churn limit. Like I know what they're trying to do, but what that actually does is it just makes it. Wait, can you, Vance, can you explain that? The churn limit? Yeah, they're basically slowing down the amount of validators that are allowed to enter the queue on a daily basis. And it should be, I think, you know, the limit, I think we calculated it's like 50 or 60,000 ETH would be the max that you could stake. But what that does is it eliminates any chance for the smaller guys to catch up. Like it's, it's good and bad. It's mostly bad. Um, I think the long-term prognosis is that the smaller guys probably shut down or operate on something that can drive their cost lowers like a DBT layer or, you know, the Lido staking router. But I don't think the days of like having a hundred liquid staking providers are going to last very long, especially when most of them are sub 50 K ETH staked. Hmm. I don't think liquid staking is a market structure, which is naturally fragmented. It's a winner take all or winner take most. All, all, all money assets have this stable coins, you know, major cryptos, they exist in two conditions. One is zero or the other is huge. Regular currencies operate like this too. There's like six currencies that have any amount of liquidity. It's like the dollar and then I don't know, it'd probably be the euro or the yen or something like that. But yeah, it's a really long t- and And the people who are, are in trouble are like the UK where it's like you're kind of a big nation, but not really. We don't have enough economic momentum to support you. A lot of these LSTs are going to be in Britain mode in my mind. Someone made the point on one of the liquid state, it was the Solana, it was the Jito and Zave from Chorus One episodes. What Someone made the point where, like, ironically, ETH staking ecosystem being so 
broken in the beginning led to the product market fit for liquid staking because there was such a long withdrawal period in between when the beacon chain was launched and you could stake versus when you could withdraw. There was no in-protocol delegation mechanism for stake. And there was actually like a lot of, there was a big DeFi ecosystem. So there was a lot of opportunity cost for staking. So just like actually liquid staking originated in the cosmos, but found product market fit first in Ethereum. And there is this sort of irony to even like ETH keeping its, ETH being very opinionated about not wanting to take big decisions inside the protocol and limiting the like throughput and usefulness of the main layer actually has led to this whole rise of really successful infrastructure providers around that who want to make it easier to use Ethereum. So like Lido would be an example of that. Eigenlayer would be an example of that. Axiom, the coprocessor would be an example of that. Like it's sort of interesting. And some of these other protocols like Solana, which was like, hey, like we can actually just allow you to easily delegate stake within the protocol. Like the penetration of liquid staking in Solana is like nothing. The stake rate is like 75% and the liquid staking penetration is like 3%. You know what I mean? I don't really know what to make of that observation, but but now Ethereum is like, hey, some of these infrastructure providers that have risen up and found product market fit, where we have no way to regulate or control them whatsoever. So now you're getting this whole narrative about is Lido too powerful? Are they co-opting the network? And it's like, I actually hear them, but also this was the design choice that you made. You know, what, what do you guys think about the? If you were withdrawn from the beacon chain, I don't think LSDs would really exist, you know, period. I think they would still exist. I mean, that... in this blog post, the guy's like claiming that, you know, we could not have foreseen this. It's like this concept existed on Cosmos before you transition to proof of stake. And the blockchain is built for tokenization. How, how is this like going to take a different path? Of course, people are going to do this. So I don't know. I, I uh, Sometimes it feels like, you know, people just like to bash on Lido because it's successful. And that's not really like the entire truth. Contributing to Lido is contributing to, to, uh, to Ethereum in my mind, at least. Their values align, dual governance. Like, I don't know how much more we need if they decentralize the validator set. I think also you could make the argument, John Charb has made this argument and I agree with it, that Lido actually decentralized the stake in Ethereum pretty effectively. Like... Lido just baked in these requirements about, hey, not all the node operators, you can't just use AWS as your sole data warehouse. Or they also were like, hey, not all of the stake can be in the US. They made it geographically distributed. They they kind of had this forcing function of all the stake flowed into Lido. And then Lido set these rules and pushed it out. Whereas if you had just allowed it to naturally accumulate, you saw this with Bitcoin, like all the mining just went to a relatively small region in China. So all the stake would have gone to like crack to centralized exchanges to crack in and to like, would you rather have it on Lido or would you rather have it on centralized exchanges? So that's, that's where it would have gone. Imagine them trying to fix that problem now. (laughs) That would be such a disaster. Like you do have 180,000 people that own Steeth that have staked ETH to Steeth. Like this is a big community. Like, I don't, I don't get why the, the, the disconnect persists, but it's not going to stop it from growing. I, I think the the interesting long term part of I forget who wrote that the the churn limit article, but he's like you know we're going to be at seventy five million staked ETH by next year. For, that's way over optimistic. Like maybe we're at like forty if it really picks up. But I think the interesting 
assumption that he had was that its teeth would be at one point, you know, bigger than the amount of unstaked teeth. And I can see why that would be a problem, but I, I still think the real risks are this restaking stuff. Like, like having teeth is one thing, having it baked into all these different slashing mechanisms, totally different. There is more demand for yield bearing money than non yield bearing money. Like there's a Jack Farley did, did an episode with this guy, Sir Paul Tucker, who used to be a BOE, you know, central banker for the bank of England. And, you know, we've talked about the debt on this show before. And like, from my perspective as an American, like a young American, I'm like, this is nuts. Why are we just accumulating more and more and more debt? But this, from the central banker's perspective, they're like, people want our interest bearing money. There is a market demand for non-interest bearing money and a market demand for interest bearing money. And the market demand for money that bears interest, which is treasuries that have a yield attached to it, is just higher. So if you kind of get into another frame of thinking about it, you're just serving the market what there's demand for. And why wouldn't you do that? It's cheap financing. So I, I kind of do see the argument that if you totally de-risked Steve, like let's just say in a totally hypothetical way, there was no risk of staking your ETH with Lido. Like why would you have ETH that doesn't bear any yield versus ETH that does bear yield? You'd want the one that bears yield. I mean, there's a balance, right? Why don't you just increase the inflation rate to 50%? <laughs> right, right. That's right, what right, you're seeing right. with like bonds today. Like, <laughs> yeah, the yield's going up, but everyone's losing their shirt on the bonds that they already own. And it works until it doesn't. I think the goal of being like net zero or deflationary is aspirational. But really what you're trying to bootstrap is, is not, the fee side is a very meaningful part of the valuation of, of ETH. And I think you can get there based on fees that it does today, you know, in terms of what it's worth today. But the, the far bigger market, the far bigger premium, the far bigger multiple is money side. And making sure it doesn't lose whatever it is that get, and it doesn't matter what exactly it is. I don't think it's like definable in one sentence or one word, but you know, having everybody start with ETH as the gas token and having it be something that people want to have and restake and, and, you know, buy for the yield, that is definitely a positive step, but it just can't be, can't be 50% a year. But, but there is, there is an argument that maybe it should be like an Eric Connor from the EF or former EF was making this argument. He's like, maybe it should be at one or 2% higher or 3% higher. I think that's a conversation that everyone will have at some point. And we're more likely to have it probably in the next year than in the next two years. I think yields will go back up and people will be like, you know, we need, we need to kind of, you know, keep our foot on the gas in terms of like the deflationary side of it. But in bear markets, this is kind of always what happens. You guys want to talk about some, um, you want to talk about maker actually maker is having a little bit of a run right now. So we talked about it on, I can't remember a couple weeks ago, maybe where we went through this chart. Just here, I'll actually pull it back up because I thought it was a pretty interesting chart. It was uh, just maker fees versus TVL versus um, token price or market cap, maybe, which is somewhere here. But yeah, I mean, there's these two. There are these two charts which are extremely correlated, which is the market cap of maker and the TVL, which are both going down. But then if you look starting back in October of last year, it just started to rip upwards. And now, like last time we talked, the the token price hadn't really started to move, but now it is kind of starting to move again. So obviously not financial advice here. And 
I'm more just I'm more just wondering if this, you know, we talked about a resurgence in sort of DeFi 1.0 and like you could put synthetics in this bucket or I don't know, Uniswap or whoever you want, but is you Kane, I, I went back, you know, you and I interviewed Kane like a year ago and he was really talking about TVL being a busted metric or not a one size fits all metric rather. And fees were going to be the important thing. That's the single source of truth for actual real demand. Uh, so fees net of token issuance. So yeah, I'm just I'm just curious what you guys what you guys think because they've also got their end game, their end game going on. We're we're definitely agreeing with basically everything that you just said. I think Kane nailed it. He's probably a little bit early for everybody else to realize it, but so is. Uh, so are a lot of his perspectives. I think what we're going to see with DeFi and the future of DeFi, whether it's 1.0, 1.5, 2.0 protocols that come back, is the ones that come back are going to be based around fundamentals where values are growing. And you know, Maker has shown that. I think we were looking at this recently. I think Maker's – so DAI is effectively the way that you measure this, right? And the DAI supply, I think, bottomed out near maybe a year ago or maybe 11 or 10 months ago at $1 billion. Uh, and it's up quite a bit since then. Um, I would imagine with Endgame, you're going to see a lot more activity. I, I know that there's been a couple of announcements this week on uh, different sub-DAOs that are launching, specifically going after RWAs. Um, I think you're going to see the model of Maker, the central bank, with sub-DAOs being the commercial banks. Um, and you know, doing different things, taking on different risks, but being out there pushing the ball forward. So, yeah, totally agree. I think what you're seeing here is for the last five or six years, there's always been a metric that people are trying to, that the market trades around, right? And um, there's always been games that people try to kind of play in crypto. So, like, even if you go back to 2017, DeFi aside, right, the BitMEX leaderboard, like, that was the game everyone was trying to play. Then it became, right, like Uniswap and, and TVL and, like, the market kind of traded off this TVL narrative. And then it became, there was, like, the game of NFTs and you know, how, how high could you mint for and stuff like that. And now I think the market is moving towards fees as the game that people are playing. And that is the best game that we will have played yet because fees actually drive sustainability. Well, it can, it can drive sustainability. It doesn't necessarily. And that, it's that I think better is than any true. of the other games that driving sustainability. I guess, I, I guess Very it's a true. step in the right direction. True. Yeah. The only problem that I have with it is uh, everybody's got a different definition of what actually is you know, derived from that metric. When the market does something like this, so like Maker is starting to like, it feels like running a little bit. I had breakfast with a few like crypto funds and kind of big crypto traders. It sounded like Maker's like the most crowded trade in the room, at least like around the table. That, that was what people were saying. They're <laughs> really? Like, yeah, people are like Maker is starting to be the consensus crowded trade. Um, when you see something like this, like from a trading perspective, do you... Does it make you think like, oh, okay, well, like one one thing is running, like maybe the uh, maybe the rest of the market starts running. You're like, oh, this is, I don't know. How do you think about that? When there's like clearly one one trade. Yeah, that we don't think about it. Into. Making billions of dollars out of an investment. Like that, you, you don't do that by, you know, like looking for the, you know, to see if the five minute RSI is oversold. they're not always traded or crowded you know the crowd kind of runs out the door at some point for some reason and um i think the other thing is that this is the only or one of the only kind of protocols that benefits from higher for longer and and if you really believe that 
which I think a lot of people are now kind of being cowed into. Um, this is one way to express that without leaving crypto or without buying T-bills, which if you're a crypto, you're buying T-bills. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. I, I, <laughs> will, I will say though, if, if this was the most crowded trade in crypto, it would not be trading the way that it has been. It would be a wildly different experience. Yeah, that's true. There, there, there's a crowd that is. Solana in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> All the billionaires are calling me about Solana. You know, point. like that is what a crowded trade looks like. So like, I, I think about this thing of like, are you consensus or are you non-consensus? It kind of what, it kind of matters what level of perception you're on. If you're in crypto, you know, like you're okay, sure. It might be consensus, but like, if you're not fully in crypto, then you're still wildly, most people don't even know what maker is like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like most, you know, most of the major funds have also recently sold this on chain, like def define consensus for me, because I think we're still in the same perspective where it's like. There's probably not a lot of sellers anymore, but there's certainly not a lot of buyers, certainly not of size. Hmm. And, you know, when something becomes crowded, you'll see, you know, usually some indication of it ripping. I, I wouldn't call this ripping. This is like a little baby bump. Well, baby bump. Yeah, yeah that's true. What does that revenue yeah, say yeah. right there, Mike? What is the revenue number? 123? Annualized. That's low. Annualized 123. So this is the, dis I mean, a couple of disclosures. One, we own Maker. Two, um, if you look at all of the metrics on MakerBurn, I think MakerBurn is honestly the better site. I think it's, for this. I think it's got more revenue on MakerBurn. You're looking at like 170 or 180 in annual revenue. Yeah. But but even that doesn't capture everything because, and this <laughs> this is kind of one of the bear cases for Maker is that it's it's definitely transparent and free wielding. It's a, definitely a little bit like the data isn't quite up to date. <laughs> like you, the kind of, data isn't quite up to date, or like. The people who are running the treasuries forgot to put the money into the into the account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like they have they because they're going off chain to on chain in terms of buying treasuries. Like, there's meat space in the middle. You know, there's people who need to do things, and yeah, sometimes like I, I think for a while they hadn't gotten a report from Coinbase on their P and L for like three or four months or something. Yeah, you know, <laughs> take these seriously, but don't take them literally. These are, these are, this is the maker burn. So the, it looks like the annualized uh, average revenue is around 100. I can't really see 160. Yeah, I remember seeing 180 somewhere. And then the, the other yeah. thing was like 60 million in, in profit going back towards buybacks, right? And then you've got the, the dye right. supply is growing. It's probably above what, 5 billion, maybe around 6 billion today. Um, and then when you start to put the valuation on it, it's like, hmm. I don't know, you're getting like a PE of 20. And a revenue multiple of like ten or ten or twelve. Well, their largest cost item, the the largest item on their uh, expenses is DSR. And you would assume yeah. as soon as as soon as that you know end game phase two goes live, you know there's gonna be a lot of value that leaves DSR to go farm sub DAOs. The other thing is that people, uh, yeah, it feels like when when this starts to happen, like this crowded trade idea, it's like people don't actually read all of the public information about what's going on like like i ask people like do you know what the dsr is like what what is that it's like well it's the main source of expenses for maker like do you understand how it works it's like no the other thing is and runa said this publicly can you explain it man or sorry i'm just gonna talk about yeah. the end game end game is basically the uh the process of like you know the commercial bank the central bank model maker ossifies its job turns from collateral onboarding 
ecosystem contributions, you know, onboarding collaborators, they're just going to be giving die to these commercial banks. Spark to the RWA DAOs, there's two of them, and then to Sakura, which is kind of like this gamified yield aggregator thing targeted at Asia. But that launches in Q2. Like, it, it feels like people are really trying to front run that. And it's great that people are like re-energized, but it is going to take a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> like it's September. Can you explain why Rune thinks that's such a problem? Because I get that it's not unified. People think about them as two different things, but aren't they kind of two different things? They are two sort of different things. And both of them are good. I think both Dai and Maker have very close, but super premium brands in crypto. What's the... What am, what am I missing there? Why, why does it need to be one? The, the public information out there is, I think you want it to be like, you know, the brand is X and then the stablecoin is XUSD. Not, not like actually X, it's just a placeholder. I think, I think he feels strongly about that. Rune does. So, so bring them together. So there's make, so die and maker don't seem like they're under the same umbrella right now, but in the future, it could be like Maker and then MKRUSD or something like that. Yeah, he, yeah. he's talked about this where he, he says, you know, I have people come up to me all the time and they're like, oh, well, what does Maker do? We create DAI. Oh, I love DAI. I use it all the time. What's I Maker? Realize that you yeah, know, no, what does Blockworks yeah, do? What does Blockworks do? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I empathize with love, that. Love a, good, love a good conference for people to let yeah. me know that they listen to our pods, <laughs> but... <laughs> Don't know yeah. what Blockworks does. <laughs> but the other thing is the, is the re-denomination, which is probably the bigger impact. Is it 1 to 12,000, Michael, or 1 to 1,200? 1,200. I think 1,200. So Newmaker will be a dollar or like a little over a dollar in that, you know, formula. That That is a really different community. Like there's kind of no denying it. And if you slap a new name on it, it's like the meme of the guy with the tape. <laughs> I don't think there's a hole in Maker. I do, I do think Rune does feel strongly about the branding, though. What what it's going to be called? Anybody's guess. Are they doing the the migrate like a migration to the new governance token at the one to twelve hundred ratio? That's just like a stock split, so that more because no people don't want to buy a thirteen hundred dollar token, but they'll buy a dollar token, right? <laughs> I I, guess. Right. I have no idea. Okay, the thing is. is it, like people don't want to buy a thousand dollar share of Apple, but they'll ape into a hundred and fifty dollar. No, Apple. but it's it's, it's important to upgrade the software. Yeah, <laughs> it's important. To... Get that tape yeah. out, slap it on there. Slap it on. Uh, it does make a difference, though. People do say Ethereum is sixteen hundred dollars. Can I buy? A, can I buy half of one? You know, or I can't afford a whole one. It's like, oh god. That's why you buy Litecoin. It's cheaper Bitcoin. It, <laughs> <laughs> the poor man. That, that is though such that, a real thing. So many narrative. people think that. Dude, like think that. No, not, a, not anymore. <laughs> does this all the time. I forget how many Netflix did this too when I worked there. Like I can't even figure out what the price was when I started because the stock's been split like so many times. Yeah. One time, uh, it was probably around 2020 or something. Polkadot was exactly ten dollars, and it was the fourth biggest crypto by market cap and. I bought some purely on the thesis that people would look at Bitcoin, think it was too expensive. ETH think it was too expensive and be like, <laughs> here's this one for $10. Like that's not the worst. That's not a horrible. Yeah. Thesis. That. Yeah. So there, that well. there's a, there's a lot of psychology into how you price IPOs and the goal is to hit it, you know, whatever the valuation is to hit it around $20 a share. 
because the psychology is, do you want to buy a share of that mm. company or do you want to go out to lunch and buy lunch? And it's like, if it's something as simple as that, that's why all SPACs initially are priced at $10 to be a little bit less expensive. You know, speaking of IPOs, there was, do you remember when Bill Gurley, and maybe that'll be a segue into our last discussion point, but remember when Bill Gurley went on this rant about direct listings over IPOs? Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, it is an arc. It is a weird process, but you totally the Matt Levine will write about this. There's like a nice aesthetic to like when the IPO goes live and then like the stock pops. It's it's I mean, it is kind of stupid. That's a really expensive like marketing strategy that you're running there. But it does. I don't know. I don't think it's totally valueless. You don't want you don't want to pull an Instacart, right? (laughs) And and go go public and have the stock fall out of the sky. That would suck. Um, well, well I, I mean, does, does that suck? They're still above their IPO price. In, Instacart didn't fall out of the sky, though. That wasn't a horrendously yeah. bad. Which IPO. one just no. did this they, recently? They popped uh, yesterday, uh, yeah, two days ago. So, so keep in mind, Mike, you know, you want to price it. The company wants to price it at as high a level as possible because that's how much money they raise. Yeah. I, and the, the employees and the founders can't touch a single share until six months in. So it doesn't um, matter. I'm what not happens. sure that's right, Michael. I don't think I think you try to underprice it a little to allow for for a little bit of a pop because as a company you can't you as a founder and stuff and employees you can't sell it for 90 days. So you you wanna you wanna get that momentum going. Totally. The the three variables here are existing shareholders, the company itself, and then purchasers of the IPO. The purchasers of the IPO want a pop because they want to be able to flip it, and that's the whole Bill Gurley point. The company wants to maximize money raised because that's, you know, it's a balance sheet question. And then employees have six months lockup. Employees founders have six months lockup. And yeah, sure. You want a little bit of a pop because it helps build the brand and, oh, what's this company doing? It just popped 20% on its IPO day, et cetera. Um, but you don't want to pop, you know, a hundred percent because then you left money on the table. You left a lot of money on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a good point. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. That's, a good point. that's why it is sort of a marketing. It's a mark, kind of a marketing do you, campaign. Do you guys, uh, do you guys take a guess at Instacart's advertising revenue? Five hundred million a year. <laughs> Michael cheated. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's Uber. That's Uber's ad revenue. Actually, it's five hundred. Instacart, I think, is like two fifty or four or four fifty. Some some large yeah, number, basically. And I it's, think, it's, um, yeah, you know it. You know the number. Uh, not exactly, but it, it's around five hundred. It's right, it's so about. Uber is also Uber is going to be at a billion dollars in ad revenue next year. Amazon is forty billion dollars in ad revenue. Uh, gets you thinking about super high value, like who uses Instacart, Uber, tied net worth individuals. Oftentimes, it's like people who, if you're in New York, maybe you'll take a thirty dollar Uber instead of the subway. If you use Instacart, like you want it to get your groceries delivered, makes you think about uh, the ad business of Coinbase, right? I think Coinbase is like sitting here sleeping on a sitting on like a you know five hundred million dollar a year ad business, right? It's a bunch of high net worths, high intent demand side, large amounts of data on users. Um, I don't know. I, I actually, I actually disagree. Yeah, I don't really love that either, to be honest. I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I think it's uh, it would be very difficult for them to build base and also suggest things to use base for. 
I would. I think there will be. I would bet money they launch an ad network by the end of twenty twenty four. But Possibly. is it the is it the highest ROI thing that they could do? I, I don't I don't really think it is. Like no, there's, there's there's yeah there's a lot there's lower hanging fruit. If they turn that futures exchange on, it's going to be just somebody raining. somebody's going to be somebody's going to own a colossal ad network in crypto, and nobody yeah. nobody owns that right now. Somebody so hundred percent right? agree with that. hundred percent agree. Like advertising in the entire ad stack itself. What you previously had was you had closed systems. So, you know, Google was an open, open ad system, Snap, Facebook, closed systems. Um, someone will build that stack based off of the decentralized, you know, ecosystem because all the data is available. It's how you marry that with pro proprietary targeting that will become very interesting. But it, it could be Coinbase or Coinbase could be the data provider and just get paid, you know, a services fee. I just, yeah, I... I feel like there's just more high ROI things that Coinbase could dedicate their time to. Like, I don't know. It's just, have you ever looked at Coinbase's product page? Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot. There's a lot, but it's getting they a lot. They are getting more way. concentrated. I think, <laughs> they, don't you think? They don't think that way. This is Coinbase's product page. Look at all <laughs> the freaking. Like... No, they do think that way. They think that way. <laughs> I they they I think they've they went too far in this last market, but like if you listen yeah. to their investor calls, they have like a 70 20 10 allocation framework, which is I forget, it's not exactly that. It's some famous I think Google yeah, came up with this. It's the classic Google thing. Right. It's like 70 core business, 20, you know, sort of fringe and 10% moonshots. And I yeah. <laughs> I mean PMs this is a lot. On that page. That yeah, page is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. You they could, right. they could be focusing their time and effort on doing a stock split, which would give them many things. <laughs> chief among them, a new chart. I think getting back <laughs> to that idea, a new chart, it's like a new day. You know, it's anything is possible. It's it's not a new chart. They just yeah, just look, <laughs> Apple, yeah. Apple and Doodle and all the other charts just go back and reset everything. Sorry, they, they also need to rebrand. <laughs> they should rebrand to Maker. Maker yeah, becomes. We're gonna issue. We're gonna issue a second stock, and that stock is gonna be called Base. AMC tried that. <laughs> the pros are doing it. I think that's it. it helps.